called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. I am Brian Karam and today we're pleased to have with us former director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. The uh, name of the show, of course, is Just Ask the Question. So we're going to start by just asking the question. Um, the uh, President of the United States claims that there is a deep state out to get him. Is there a deep state in the United States? Well, no, not in my mind. Uh, I, uh, this, this is a term I, I never heard uh, before or, or heard of before. Uh, this, uh, uh, you know, the, during the campaign and, and, and during this administration. I, I guess what it means is... Uh, the cadre of career professional civil servants, not just in, in intelligence or law enforcement, but throughout the government, who are a great strength uh, of this uh, country and its system of governance, because that's who has the, the expertise, the corporate memory, uh, uh, and the, the dedication and patriotism to stick with it as a career. And this is a, a very important feature of our, our country, it's one of the strengths of our country, if that's what's meant by uh, the deep state, which, uh, again, a concept that I just uh, is foreign to me. For those of us who, you know, we've been on the outside covering it as a reporter for many years, you know that there are certain ways that um, that intelligent uh, uh, activities occur. You know how the FBI acts. You know how the CIA acts. They're never going to tell you. I mean, the most common refrain you ever get from the FBI is we can neither confirm nor deny anything. And the CIA, of course, is is uh, even more circumspect than that. And But nonetheless, there is a reason for that, is there not? I mean, you have to keep certain secrets. Oh, exactly. And uh, this is you know, part of the, the dilemma uh, of a free society where uh, there's a great premium placed, and appropriately so, on transparency and, and openness. <clears throat> Just speaking about the intelligence community, and, and to an extent the same is true with uh, uh, the investigations conducted by the law enforcement community, uh, there is a, uh, a protection of privacy issue here, particularly law enforcement. And also, uh, a very important uh, thing, uh, uh, particularly in the intelligence community, is the protection of sources, methods, and tradecraft. And there will always be this, or, and there has been for the 50-plus years that I've been in the intelligence business, an aura of suspicion about th- that secrecy. And that's why, uh, you know, congressional oversight is so important, because the, the two com- uh, congressional committees that are dedicated for this purpose I think have a, a especially heavy burden, a responsibility, because they have to represent or be surrogates for the for the public, and for that matter, many uh, other members, uh, to, to safeguard uh, you know our way of life and to ensure that uh, what the intelligence community and law enforcement community is doing is legal and, and moral and ethical. That's been, that's been the watchword. That's not to say that you know we haven't made mistakes. Certainly, we have. 
Well, and and you have yourself been involved in a couple of, I guess, controversies regarding a releasing of information to reporters. Um, you can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've been accused of leaking, uh, which you know I haven't done, and uh, I, I've certainly spoken to reporters. I did during my time as DNI, sometimes uh, on background, and other times. Uh, come at a high cost and the, and the question um you were accused of leaking and i found that kind of funny because i mean you tried to keep some of the leaking down when you were when you were in charge of of, of when you were in the national uh, director of national intelligence did you not i mean in 2014 there was a thing with some reporters that i mean you tried to make sure that that uh information wasn't leaked well again one man's uh that's true. Uh, I did try to uh, facilitate, particularly after uh, you know the Snowden revelations, uh, facilitate the protection of uh, genuine, legitimate whistleblowing, uh, particularly through the use of uh, the intelligence community uh, inspector general. And so there would be cases where, uh, in the intelligence community, uh, people wanted to make known their concerns, particularly to the Congress, and I made it a point never to interfere in the, 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 trans, the transiting, the, con, the conveyance of genuine concerns about or complaints about uh, the intelligence community and ensuring that our oversight uh, knew about that, and I never involved myself in that. As far as my own behavior, well, uh, again, I did try to engage with the media because that's important. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think I under, have an understanding of the importance of uh, protecting sources and methods and tradecraft that I didn't, I, I always try to protect that. The other point here about leaks is, for me, leaking involves uh, the uh, uh, dissemination of classified material to unauthorized recipients, uh, as opposed to uh, unclassified uh a material that has, uh, that, that it, you know, is perfectly open. And that, to me, is not leaking. And I'm referring specifically to uh, Falderall about the, uh, the infamous dossier, which Correct. was not an intelligence document and it was not classified. And it, w- there is there's a famous saying by Helen Thomas that 
And she once said that uh, you have to be careful about classified material because some people around the White House would like to classify the wall colors. So it's is overclassification of uh, of information or classify listing things as being classified when they shouldn't be. Is that an issue? Yeah, there it is an issue, and uh, frankly, the government at large and the intelligence community as a part of it uh, does overclassify. There, there's there's no question about it, and there's lots of reasons for that. For one, the classification system was basically designed and, and built and, and implemented during a hard copy, the hard copy era. Right. And we're way beyond that, yet the rules that govern uh, uh, classification are pretty much uh, still derive their basis from a hard copy era. And because of the volume, there is a, a certain uh, degree of automaticity about uh, classifying. You know, if I only handled uh, four or five or six documents a day that were classified, I might take the time uh, to reflect, well, is this classification too much? Uh, But when you're handling dozens, hundreds, thousands uh, in in a a day or a week, uh, that gets to be a little problematic uh, because you're more focused, frankly, on content. What does this document say rather than is this, document or the, this paragraph properly classified or not. So, so the do you, system is, is not suited for this day and age. So that begs the question, should, uh, when you say that it's uh, leaking versus uh, whistleblowing, if something is leaked that is classified, how do you take into account the fact that the information that was leaked may not necessarily have needed to be classified, or do we just prosecute all of those cases the same way? How, how does that work? I, I think, in the, at least in the last administration, I, I can't speak for this one, but in the last administration, which I guess had gained the reputation of uh, having prosecuted uh, more leakers or going after more leakers than any previous administration, uh, I think there was a judgment made ultimately at the Department of Justice whether uh, to uh, press on uh, with legal redress for uh, leaks, and and one of those one of the judgments made, of course, is the uh, you know the harm uh, done uh, by exposure of classified uh, information, uh, and that's that's my issue with uh, Mr. Snowden uh, and right. his revelations. I I can almost understand what he did if what he exposed were limited to had been limited to so called uh, air quotes. Uh, domestic surveillance, but he exposed so much else that had absolutely nothing to do with so-called domestic surveillance that seriously compromised some very uh, critical uh, foreign intelligence collection capabilities. Well, on the Snowden, I mean, I I hear you on that. Um, I always wondered if, if he felt as strongly as he did about what he did why he did not stand and face the heat. If it were me and I had released it, I would have stood up and said, yeah, I did it. And I wouldn't have fled to Russia, but that's just me. <laughs> well, what, what really appalled me about, about him and what he did was, um, actually it came out during uh, John Oliver, the British comedian interview that uh, he had with Snowden. I, I, I got the idea that Snowden anticipated that was going to be a comedic event, and Oliver was quite serious and had done his homework. And when 
him and consider uh, all the documents that you put on, and, and he acknowledged that he had not. And so that, to me, took away a lot of uh, whatever credibility that people ascribe to to Snowden. Right, he just did a dump, a metadata dump. Uh, yeah, well, more than metadata, yeah, but a pretty serious one. So getting back to where we started out with asking the question, why is it and what is it that this administration is trying – I mean, we talk about career um, – middle managers, basically. I mean, career people in the intelligence community. But they are ascribing a a predisposed – a disposition towards a shadow government inside the intelligence community, inside the Department of Justice. Why is that, and how do you tell people – how do you explain to people in – an environment where you have to maintain some secrecy that this is not the case? Or do they listen? Well, I, I think uh, a tradition in both intelligence and law enforcement has, has been, and there have obviously been exceptions to this that have been exposed recently, but the general rule of thumb is you leave your political affiliations and preferences at the doorstep when you go to work. And uh, it's not to say that People in the community and law enforcement don't have political views. They do. Uh, they vote. And uh, there are certain restrictions on what you can do in a political context uh, laid out generally in the Hatch Act. But the suggestion that there's some uh, conspiracy that's designed to uh, undermine and overturn uh, or even overturn uh, uh, the current administration is just, uh, it's just absurd. It's just, it's just not true. With that, we're going to take a short break. This is Just Ask the Question. We'll be right back. We have a crisis in America. Childhood obesity is growing at an alarming rate. Working with our local farmers, schools, and families, we can eradicate childhood obesity. We believe that institutionalizing an educational center on this land will allow us to work with the schools, allow us to work with students to help them connect to the food that they eat and choose healthier options. By supporting my local organic farmer's market, I know that I'm keeping my family healthy, I'm protecting the environment, and I'm creating jobs for my community. Let's invest in the health of our future. Together, we can eradicate childhood obesity. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. And welcome back, and thanks. Our, our guest again is uh, Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. And in gathering intelligence, Jim, I guess I want to talk a little bit about that. We learn in, in you know, as reporters that you never stop gathering information, that it's always a problem, uh, that you can never be 100% sure of anything. Is that uh, the same in actual the, in, the gathering of intelligence for our country? Well, yeah, and it, I think there's some parallelism between uh, intelligence and, and journalism. Well, I hope there's some intelligence in journalism, but... <laughs> yeah, no, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, the, and the point is that you're always looking for another source of information to corroborate what you already have. 
so it is an intelligence. And what I have seen, uh, when I think back over my 50 years, how relatively primitive intelligence gathering was, even the heyday of the Cold War, and how it has mushroomed, particularly our collection accesses since then. And the whole onset of the Internet, social media, uh, the technologies that... uh, enable us to collect huge volumes of information and, and move it, and importantly, be able to move it quickly, is really mind-boggling. In fact, I'd say that technology has probably had more to do with change in the intelligence community than, than any other single factor uh, because of the growth of our collection sources. So we certainly take advantage of all the, the technology and use as many modes of collection as we possibly can. But that's not in any way to uh, minimize the importance of, of the, the oldest form of intelligence collection, which is human collection, gathering information from, from a, a, another human being. That's a... That remains, even in the face of all the technology, still remains a very important, a crucial source of intelligence because the technology is normally not going to give you what is, to some extent, a holy grail, elusive holy grail in intelligence, which is intent. I, I should have you teach that to some of my young reporters. Okay, so here's this. <laughs> the more sources you have, uh, and that's why I think, again, looking back over 50 years, uh, intelligence uh, has gotten better because the of its rapidity and the fidelity of uh, of the information that we present to, to policymakers, commanders, uh, diplomats, etc., because of the richness of, of the sources that we can that we can draw on. One of the things I like to do in, in this podcast is uh, try to teach a lesson to some of our readers, maybe school them up a little bit on, on gathering information and how we as reporters can make mistakes, but we correct them. So my story about that, I'll tell you this quick anecdote. It was years ago, I was working for America's Most Wanted, and we were shooting a story in the panhandle of Florida. And we had to drive that night into Mississippi for an interview the next day. It was dark. We were getting tired. We pulled over. We decided to eat. Pulled over to the side of the road, a roadside diner. And the four of us, the producer, me, sound guy, and the photographer, got out. You know, we got out to eat. We walked into this roadside diner. The guy standing behind the counter looked like a pirate. He had a patch on his eye. I think he even said arg. And he asked us, what we wanted to order, and we all ordered our meal, you know, chicken, sandwich, and we all sat down and started eating. About two minutes into the uh, the meal, I, I looked around, and my photographer had been griping the whole time. We can't stop in South Florida. The rednecks, they're, you know, you're going to get robbed. We're going to get beaten. It's dangerous. And we thought he was kind of silly, but it kind of stuck. And so we're sitting there eating in this booth, and I looked around, and I said, guys, put your food down. And they go, what are you talking about? I said, put your food down for a second and look around. So we looked around, and out of all 20 people in this restaurant, we were the only four people who had all of our eyes. Everybody had, like, they were, I mean, it was it was kind of, it was a little scary. They were, you know, like, rake marks, and one guy was just had no eyes, and he looked like he'd been, you know, through hell and back. And so I said, look, let's just get our stuff and get out of here and, my photographer's going, I told you, I told you. <laughs> he was scared to death. So we got in the car, put ourselves in the car, and as we pulled away in a spray of gravel, we looked across the street, and there was a huge sign that said, Southern Florida School for the Blind. <laughs> so the, 
<laughs> it always it, ta it taught me a lesson that you can never have enough information. Exactly, and uh, it also shows uh, the importance of uh, observation and uh, knowing the environment that, that you're in. Exactly, uh, these are all important hallmarks for uh, intelligence people, uh, particularly when uh, you're gathering what's called human intelligence, as you as you were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to think I like I said I like to think there was some intelligence, but what I did learn from that, and the and the thing that that uh, it brings us back to what we're talking about. If those people who make an assumption that there is some deep state at work in the United States, and the president, when he pitches this, is he not taking advantage of partial information and coincidences and other information that that he can make it seem like a reality exists that doesn't exist, much like we thought we were going to get in a fight, and of course we weren't. Yeah, I think some of this, uh, yeah, is, has to do with uh, his own his own reality, and, and he he has he has his own unique reality. And I think some of it just stems from um, what struck me, frankly, is just uh, profound uh, ignorance about about the government, uh, about our constitution, and and uh, about. Uh, uh, Public service and uh, and people that are attracted to uh, government service, and I think he going in looked upon that whether you know whether sincerely or not or contrived as something to be suspicious of. And you know my own experience, where when we uh, four of us, uh, the director of CIA, John Brennan, then Jim Comey, director of the FBI, Admiral Mike Rogers, director. And I briefed uh, then President elect Trump on the 6th of January 2017 in, in Trump Tower. And, uh, you know, r right after that, he accused us of being Nazis. Why? You were in that meeting. Why? He, he suspected, uh, yeah, and the meeting itself was actually pretty, uh, pretty cordial. It was pretty affable, uh, solicitous, courteous, uh, even complimentary. And then, uh, I, you know, he has this uh, reality of his, of his own that uh, causes him to look with suspicion at us. And I think ultimately the reason that he reacted that way was because what we presented to him, the, the, the magnitude of the Russian interference and the very uh, c compelling and, uh, evidence that we had high confidence in that the Russians meddled. In fact, in my book, I make the point I make the assertion that I think maybe the Russians turned the election. Well, anything that that causes a question about the legitimacy of his election, uh, he grew grows immediately suspicious of him. And however inconsistent he's been, that's one thing that he's been consistent about is you know uh, attacking anyone or anything that that uh, cast doubt on the. Uh, on the legitimacy of, of his election. Well, and I and think that's what sort of under, underpins a lot of this uh, deep state business. That's a good point. And when we talk about election hacking, you all briefed him there. As I understand it, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, there are two different areas where we're talking about hacking. We're talking about 
social media and the bots and the influence that way with people trying to, you know, get voters to move in a certain direction. And then we're talking about actual hacking of, of voting booths and, and actual that type of thing. Is that that's that's a correct assessment? Yes. Well, that, that is a, an important distinction. And, and, and the, this, with respect to the first category, uh, that what was so different, I mean, the, the Russians have a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and other people's, and we have records going back at least to the 60s where they tried to involve themselves in and influence our elections. But never, never at the magnitude and scale and multi, multi-dimensional nature of what they did in 2016. So, and of course, what the the big difference was the enabler of social media, and they touched a lot of people in this country, whether people were winning of that or not, and that's the big difference. And another thing is overlooked. And of course, you know the hacking of the uh, and the very well timed dumping of DNC emails. Uh, the, another thing, another part of this, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but was actually quite significant was the huge propaganda effort mounted by RT. You know, the, the Russian television. Russian government uh, propaganda arm, uh, mainly, in te- mainly television, that uh, mounted a very sophisticated uh, and uh, aggressive campaign, uh, initially just against Hillary Clinton, but later in favor of President Trump. So now the other, and it is an important distinction to point out, is that we saw no evidence, uh, not to say there wasn't any, but we just didn't see any evidence whatsoever of tampering with voter tallies in the 2016 election. So that is an important distinction. So there's a difference between affecting opinions and then the more uh, mechanical or technical um, hacking or or penetrating voter rolls or even attempting to influence voter tallies and again we didn't see any evidence of that now in maryland they've they've uh, the company that supplies the actual voting machines they found that they were easily targeted and could be hacked and so for the coming midterm elections there was even talk at one point in time of just going back to a, a paper ballot and i guess we could go back to discussing hanging chads but um yeah <laughs> well i think there's a i think there's merit uh, uh to um obviously doing all that can be done in the way of cybersecurity. Now, the problem there, of course, is that our voting apparatus is basically run at the state and local level. And the federal government uh, is a bit limited in what it can do. Uh, you know, can't set mandatory standards or, or any of that. Uh, we certainly tried, to, DHS specifically, Department of Homeland Security, uh, promulgated, you know, best practices for cybersecurity and on that. But ultimately, this is a state and local uh, responsibility. So that sort of thing has to, obviously has to be attended to. The much more difficult challenge, though, is uh, how do uh, you get people to question everything they see, hear, or read? And what's out there in the Internet may or may not be valid. And I think there's a for whatever reason, a uh, willingness just to accept whatever is out there. And the Russians exploited that to a fairly well. And one of their uh, tools or techniques that they use is to cause doubt to be, to be cast uh, on whether or not truth is even knowable. And that's a, that's a, a, 
Russian information operations campaign technique, and they use it to a fairly well in the, in the run-up to the election of 2016. Well, you know, they say it's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled. Well, apparently so. I mean, I, I think that uh, that's that that's apt in, in describing uh, how I think uh, the Russians affected uh, opinions uh, quite substantially in this country. Are you concerned about the midterm elections? I am. And the reason I'm concerned about it is that I, I know that government uh, organizations, DHS, FBI, NSA, etc., uh, are all uh, committed to and are working towards having uh, our election process uh, secure. But what's missing here, in my view, is the national leadership that only the president uh, can exert, uh, the, the unique bully pulpit that he occupies, to galvanize a sense of urgency uh, about uh, the actually sacred nature of our elections. It's, you know, it's a fundamental underpinning of our, of our country and our system. Let's drill down on a little bit uh, about that. I mean, everyone, if you're pro-Trump, uh, the people I've spoken to that are still firmly in the president's corner think that uh, people have unnecessarily picked on him, that while they don't necessarily like his tweets or his attitude, he's got the heart of the country at his heart, and he's trying to do good. Then there are those who are uh, on the fence. Those are few and far between. And then on the other end are the people who think that he's you know, guilty of uh, corruption and obstruction of justice and should be impeached and removed from office. Uh, where do you see the president? My concern uh, has from the outset, and the only reason that I chose to speak up as I have is because of my concern on uh, for the, our institutions. And I think there has been a conscious assault on some fundamental tenets of this country. Uh, rule of law, uh, a free press, uh, independent judiciary, uh, independent intelligence community. It seems as though, uh, you know, this president is most concerned, not so much about the country, but more about himself. And as, you know, he's enriched himself by virtue of, of uh, and his family by virtue of being president. And that's, you know, that's my take. And I, I understand uh, people feel very strongly uh, about about that, and there are very ardent uh, uh, Trump supporters. Yes, the indeed. The reason I chose to speak out was because uh, you know, I spent a lot of my lifetime, 50 years in the military and in uh, civilian capacities, uh, defending those institutions, which I believe are under assault, and regrettably under assault not only internally, but externally, particularly from the Russians, who are bent on undermining us. Oh, well, and some might say under assault by the uh, Congress, by failure to act as a balance. Well, that's right. Well, that's right. The, the three branches of the government are supposed to be co-equal, and they're supposed to uh, uh, ensure checks and balances on the behavior of, of the others. And that's not actually happening right now, and that's, that's dangerous. Now, when you were in uh, intelligence gathering, did you ever see Donald Trump coming? I mean, was there ever anybody going, hey, we got to watch this guy, or 
Hey. No, no, we don't. Uh, contrary to what many people think, we are. Our primary focus is outward. Uh, you know, the foreign adversaries, and that that is enough to keep us busy. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Well, was there any concern with him being involved, uh, and I guess specifically with Russia? Was there ever any red flags that came up? Prior? No, that, that all that didn't come up until uh, you know the campaign, and 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 even in our intelligence community assessment, we didn't have anything in there about collusion. Uh, we didn't have enough uh, at the time evidence uh, to to make that case, and, and certainly a, a high a high enough confidence level. Uh, to comport with the rest of, of to the rest of that assessment. Now, since then, since I left the government, and you know, all these things have come out, the Mueller investigation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, you know, I guess ultimately, I hope the Mueller investigation resolves all that one way or the other. What exactly has been and is is if there is one a connection between uh, uh, the. President Trump and and, uh, and Russia. I, I don't actually know, I, I, but it's, this is a big cloud hanging over the country and certainly over the presidency, and it's something that needs to be resolved one way or the other. Have you ever seen this country this divisive in your lifetime? I, I have not. I, I have not. Uh, certainly, I, you know, something I lived through was uh, Vietnam and all its aftermath, and that was... How does this compare to Vietnam? Well, it was a very trying time, but I never felt... Even you know, with Watergate and the Vietnam, that our uh, institutions were in jeopardy like they are now. Well, you know, I, I look. I remember the Tet Offensive. I mean, I remember uh, Bobby Kennedy got gunned down in '68, and there was Martin Luther King, and there was civil unrest, and there were riots in the streets. And but you're saying that this is worse today than than then. It, it is for me. I, I feel much more uh, uneasy much more uncomfortable, much more concerned about the fundamental uh, premises of this country uh, that, now than I did then. Tell us a little, about, uh, a little bit about your book, Jim. Well, uh, I actually wasn't going to write a book uh, until uh, you know, I went through the election process and all that, and I decided I needed to, maybe to speak up about I thought I felt I needed to do my what my little part in trying to educate uh, the public, uh, those of you know bothered to read the book uh, about the threat posed by Russia and what they what they did during the election. So the, the book is well, it's a, a lifetime biography. Uh, probably two thirds of it is about the last ten years uh, of my government service when I served as. Sequentially, as Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Pentagon for three and a half years, about six and a half years as Director of National Intelligence. Most of the book is devoted to that period. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to. You, you may be an intelligence gathering, but PR in your your strong suit. What's the title of the book? <laughs> we want to promote that. Facts and fears, uh, hard truths from a lifetime in intelligence. And it's available Amazon and everywhere else. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's done very well. It's, uh, it's on the New York Times uh, bestseller list for uh, for about four weeks or so. So it's and it's it's continuing to sell. So I'm very uh, surprised and then pleased. When you met with um, <clears throat> Donald Trump for the first time, what was your immediate impression? 
Well, he, uh, you know, he was he was obviously on his, on his best behavior. I think uh, there's been a lot of fall uh in the run-up to that meeting, uh, notably a, a tweet that he put out when uh, I guess he found out that when uh, our session was scheduled and he thought there was some sort of or alleged there was some kind of delay and we needed another day to get our story straight or, or, or some such that was in a tweet. So um, personally, and I think all four of us were a bit apprehensive about just how this was going to go, but he was very affable, very complimentary, um, and uh, I, thought, I thought the whole exchange was, was actually pretty professional. Um, it was just now... What was unusual about it, uh, as I think Jim Coney recounted in his book, and I did in mine, that you know, I started writing a press release even before we left the room <laughs> about uh, about the uh, about the meeting, and, and tried to make the wanted to make the that we said that the Russian interference had no impact on the outcome of the election which we never said and couldn't say whether that was not in our charter, not in our authority, and we certainly didn't have the resources to do that. But that's what they wanted to say, again, in the interest of not allowing anything to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election. Do you think he used you in that meeting or tried to use you? Well, he tried to, uh, certainly with that statement, yeah. Yeah. And we tried to respectfully point out that, no, we didn't, we didn't say that. What do you think lately about where the administration is? We haven't had a press briefing in more than two weeks, and now it's the monthly, daily briefing. Um, he has limited his interaction with the press and the public to tweets, pool sprays in the White House, and his rallies. How do you hold a president accountable under those circumstances? Well, I think it's called, I, I think this is. Uh... You know, I, I will say, Brian, I, I certainly, uh, over my time in the in the government, I certainly had my ups and downs with the media, but I don't think there's ever been a more important time for a free press and, and that the media continue to um, do what it's been doing, which is uh, do its best to hold the president accountable, even given, uh, you know, his uh, lack of access. Well, you know, I'm soft-spoken. It's going to be hard for me to push. Yeah, I know you are. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, the, what? And look, everybody has a problem with the press. You know, Helen Thomas once again, one of my mentors, once said, "You don't go into this business to be loved." And I understand it's part of the adversarial relationship, but that doesn't mean that it can't be a professional relationship. And yeah, exactly. And in, in, in talking with you, and in talking with others who have had interactions with with Mr. Trump, that um, ability to have a real professional relationship is lacking. Well, I think it's, uh, again, it's almost like uh, his, his reality about uh, the deep state and uh, his reality about the media is that it's out to get him. Uh, it's out to undermine him, out to attack him, and the media isn't fair. Uh, does all it can to make him look bad, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, he is not, as we've learned, uh, you know, isn't real good about accepting criticism. Uh, he's pretty thin-skinned. Uh, anyone who criticizes him, to include private private citizens such as myself, uh, are open to uh, attack by by the president. And you, you sort 
thin skin uh, about criticism. But you know, he came he came from a world where uh, he uh, controlled everything, and he he manipulated the media, uh, exploited the media uh, for his own uh, publicity purposes. Yeah, we we fell for it. He's in a place <clears throat> where uh, he can't he can't do that, and he is in a a huge fishbowl, which I don't think he was prepared to live in. That's and that's an interesting observation. Do you do you think he can? Do you think it's gone too far? And do you and look, I'll just ask the question. Do you think he should be um he should be impeached? You know, I don't know about that. Here's and here's why I'm very ambivalent about it. Because I think an impeachment, even an impeachment process, would do nothing more than uh deepen uh, and amplify that the polarization and the divisiveness that already exists in this country. And I think the only way that this this situation uh, can be resolved is either via resignation or um, at the polls. Yeah, and I don't see him resigning. Do you? Well, I don't know. I, I you know, I, probably not. It's not. It wouldn't be his. I mean, I would, you know, I think some would see that as what would be in the best interest of the country, but just given his nature, I, I doubt that he'd uh, he'd do that unless there were really some overwhelming or compelling... Uh, unless it was in his self-interest. Uh, well, exactly. And I, I mean, I could see him at the end of a, <clears throat> you know, one term going, dropping the mic and going, I'm the best it's ever been, I've done more for this country than anybody, and you all didn't appreciate me, and I'm gone. And, and go to Mar-a-Lago and call it a day. Yeah. That would I, I could see that happening as well. What about the how has uh, this administration hurt intelligence gathering? What's your concern there? Well, the, the major concern I have, I mean, I think the intelligence community and the great men and women in it are going to continue to do their duty, and that is to tell truth to power. I think they will continue to do that. I do worry about our foreign relationships, uh, which are quite valuable. Uh, from an intelligence perspective. And, uh, you know, when he uh, behaves as he does, uh, particularly the way he, I think, mistreats some of our staunchest, closest allies, like the UK or France or Germany, uh, Australia, uh, that has, uh, you know, downsides from an an intelligence perspective. And then when he appears to be, uh, you know, sloppy with protecting classified information, that that doesn't engender confidence uh, in those allies who do share, uh, you know, critical intelligence with us. So our reputation around the world, I mean, prior to him, we kind of know where it was. I know what he would like to think, that people are respecting us once again. But even in terms like North Korea, he hasn't really pushed. And that's an issue you know very well. Um, North Korea has not budged at all, have they? No, not really. Uh, I mean, I think uh, this administration uh, uh, kind of came into this North Korea thing like, like gangbusters and kind of going out like the goodwill hour, use a 1940s radio metaphor, <laughs> I'm dating myself there, but uh, they too are now learning the harsh realities of dealing with North Korea, and it requires uh, patience. I thought, I actually supported uh, President Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, I thought it was a good idea. And the reason I felt that way is because when I was in North Korea in 2014, I was just struck by 
the paranoia and the siege mentality that exists in Pyongyang and how stuck on their narrative the North Koreans were and how stuck on our narrative we were. I mean, I had my White House uh, talking, assigned talking points that I was supposed to recite to the North Koreans. And so the only way that those, those two narratives could, could be changed is if the bigger partner, meaning the United States, changed it. So I supported him, him doing that. But I thought he squandered the leverage he had by virtue of the, the intense, long-standing desire the North Koreans have had for a face-to-face meeting of their leader with our president. They wanted that for decades. And they got it and didn't pay much of a price for it. No, they didn't. The, the gratuitous uh, concession on the exercises was a huge and unnecessary mistake. And, you know, I said, well, I will save money. Well, readiness, military readiness, is not cheap. It comes at a price. And the reason it's so critical that those exercises go on in, in Korea is because every year most of the U.S. force turns over. Most everyone that serves there is there for one year and leaves. So you, you have to reinforce uh, the training on tactics, techniques, and procedures and, of course, the North Koreans know very well what the scenario is. It's been the same for decades, which is it posits a, an invasion of the North from the North and response from the South. And the North Koreans well understand that. And they know the terrain. Oh, <laughs> well, they know the terrain. And they, so they conjure up this image that uh, this is a threat to them and all, and all that. That's just so much uh, of their uh, rhetoric. And I think... This sort of points out, uh, you know, the president might have been served, well served, if he studied and prepared a little bit more about about the history of the, the, what's occurred on the peninsula and the history of the way North Korea behaves. Let's see. Last two questions that I want to speak with you about, if uh, we can. Let's talk a little bit about John Brennan and having his credentials yanked. How does that strike you? Well, I, I've spoken to this publicly. I think it's uh, it's terrible. And the reason is, this is the president using uh, an administrative weapon, and certainly it's within his authority to do this in a way that's completely unprecedented. Uh, by And in doing so, what he's, what he's doing is, is suppressing uh, free speech. And that, that's what really this issue is about. You can take issue with what John said. That's not the point. Parsing what he said is not the issue. What is an issue here is free speech and uh and and what he it's pretty clear that he's you know this is an enemies list and he's going after people in a way that he can uh for people that have opposed him or criticized him and i think the the, the arch example of this is mike hayden who's been out of the government right. for nine years nine years he had nothing to do with any of this not not the investigation not the intelligence community assessment about russian meddling in our election Nothing to do with any of this, so it's clear that this is this is purely political. And it's uh, it, doesn't he also kind of hurt himself in that way? I mean, isn't Brennan kind of a uh, like you a, a well of information that he should tap on occasion? Well, sure. I mean, that's the the whole reason for um, extending a, 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 you know that courtesy, which is goes back decades of having senior formers continue their eligibility. Uh, for access to classified information. And, you know, so you can be called upon 
for advice, counsel, corporate memory, and, you know, why did you make this decision? And I've I've done that as an agency director twice. Uh, I I called on former directors uh, for their advice and counsel. Sometimes they'd offer it when I didn't ask for it, which is healthy. And uh, I've consulted with uh, uh, some members of this administration, senior members of this administration, although none of those consultations required access to classified information. So the issue isn't your current access to classified information, which I don't have. I haven't had access to any classified information since the 20th of January, 2017. The reason that this is practices has been done is to benefit from that corporate memory and what, you know, what, how we, we faced issues that current leaders are still facing. And so, you know, it has continuity. Yeah. Is it absolutely, is it crucial to the fate of the Republic? Of course not, but it it is useful that, 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 uh, we're available for advice when we're asked. And, and, and you have information that might be like you were saying in gathering intelligence, it's not just what you get off the internet. It's, it's what you get from people and putting it in context. Well, that's, that's, that's true. And, And importantly, putting it in a context, absolutely true. So uh, I guess, you know, we've all seen that uh, Woodward has a new book out where he says the president has had a nervous breakdown or is it's chaotic. And they're bringing this as news. But I got to ask, is this news to anybody? Well, I don't think it's news. I mean, this is uh, actually uh, one more in a, uh, uh, a genre of such books. Uh, Fire and Fury, uh, Omarosa's book, and, and now Bob Woodward. The, the difference is that Bob Woodward is uh, a distinguished journalist, no question about it. He's been rewarded and recognized for that. Going back many, many years, he's, he's written many other books like this. And so I think his book, uh, you know, comes with more credibility. And obviously now we're going to have the uh, the counters and the, the denials and all that. But uh, knowing how I've been interviewed for a couple of his books, and he's a very skilled interrogator. And he, uh, whenever he possibly can, he uh, looks to more than one source for uh, anything he says. I, I do know that. Well, I, I thought one of the funniest stories um, was told was about uh, General Mattis having a conversation with uh, Sean Spicer. And Sean was trying to get him out in front of the press briefing room, and he told him no on several occasions. And then finally said, look, I, I've... I've killed people for a living. If if you don't leave me alone, I want to send you to Afghanistan. <laughs> well, he's, Jim Mattis is a is a great, great American, a great patriot, a great public servant, and a, a friend of mine. I have great admiration and respect for him, and I hope he just hangs in there. Well, do you think that's what it is? Do you think some of the people that are still there, including General Kelly, who I've I've known and had respect for in the past? And, they, and he's kind of sullied his reputation with some. And and General Mattis has uh, enjoyed a, a pretty good reputation. And McMaster, I knew uh, during the Gulf War, and he's he's left. But do you get the feeling that some people are there just trying to hold the machine together? Well, I think there's – well, going in, I mean, whether this administration or any, any other, I think what uh, moves people, particularly military Officers, I can I can speak to that having been one. Is you know, you're uh, I certainly was always a, a duty guy at heart. And when I was asked to serve, 
three civilian capacities, I, I, I said yes. Um, uh, sometimes kind of kicking the screen a little bit, but uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I said yes, I'd serve. And I think that, that fundamentally motivates um, anyone that comes back in the government after uh, having a full military career. And so I'm spe- speaking specifically here of, of Jim Madison and, and John Kelly. Um, now, to the extent to which you know they buy into the president's agenda, well, that, that's another uh, another issue. But I, I do you think, think they do? That well, I, I think I think uh, Kelly does. I mean, he's he's in a different capacity than right Jim Mattis, but he's in the White House. He's part of that uh, part of the White House staff. So I think he has, to, and he I, he said as much that he supports uh, the president's agenda. I think Jim Mattis much more uh, motivated by uh, a sense of obligation to the country and, and to the men and women of the armed forces. And I think that's, when he was asked uh, to serve, I, I think that's what really uh, impelled him. So let's end on this. Do you see uh, hope on the horizon? Are you fearful for the future? What are your thoughts? Well, in the book, I uh, I have a collaborator, Trey Brown, who's t- absolutely terrific. He uh, was my speechwriter for the last three years. I served as DNI, and he and I just kind of mind melded. And it hadn't been portrayed; I'd never written the book. The only dispute we had was how to end it, and we uh, we did, did up a very uh, dark conclusion. We did up a very happy face uh, conclusion. Didn't like either one. And ended up by simply saying, the United States has endured traumas in its historical past, most notably the Civil War, and again, what I lived through is Vietnam. And in the end, we emerged uh, the better and the stronger for it. And I just kind of end the book there without making a pronouncement on the, on the future. I, don't, I, I don't, honestly don't know. Well, I don't think any of us know, but I think you certainly framed it uh, as the argument is, you're framing it as saying this is as challenging as the Vietnam War era or the Civil War. I think so. I think it's very comparable. In fact, as I said earlier, uh, I, I worry more about jeopardy to our fundamental institutions in this country now than I certainly did during the, in the aftermath of Vietnam, which, and that's something I had up close and personal experience with. Jim, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on today? <laughs> we tried. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thanks for, uh, for for being here today. And the name of the book again is? Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from 50 Years in Intelligence. Well, a Lifetime in Intelligence, excuse me. By Jim Clapper. And uh, look it up uh, at Amazon. I recommend it to everyone. And Jim, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Brian. And thanks again for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>